I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, though we will be reading the whole chapter. You can find that on page 837 in your pew Bibles. Before we read the word of the Lord, though, let us go and spend a moment in prayer. Gracious, sovereign Lord, send your spirit among us so that what we read we may believe. And so, Lord, being filled with your spirit and united to Christ in love, we may persevere in the walk of the Christian faith, walking to the new heavens and new earth by your grace. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll read from Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 22, 18 to 22 being our text for the sermon today. So Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And now our text. Now John's disciples, the Pharisees, were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, within the umbrella of what people call Christianity, there are many different religions. It might seem a bit counterintuitive, but I'm using the word religion in a different way. I'm not thinking of Hinduism or Islam, what we think about normally as religions, but a way of living the faith. There's a variety of them. We may have grown up in a different kind. These aren't just traditions. These aren't just theological opinions, different ways to read the Bible. These are entirely different mindsets about how we approach the Christian faith. Some people... Take what you can maybe call, derogatorily, a happy-clappy approach to the faith. Everything's so joyous. Everything's so happy. God is my best friend, and I have a relationship with him. None of this religion aspect of the faith, none of this confession and sin. I'm just happy to be with God. We might be familiar with this. But we might also be familiar with another form. The rigid, the cold, the stalwart, you could almost call it ghoulish, gray-faced and ashen, the kind of religion characterized by fasting, mourning, confession, very similar to the way the Pharisees practice their religion, very similar to, it seems, the way even John's disciples after his arrest seem to practice their religion. This is a religion characterized by waiting. Salvation is coming. But not yet. The kingdom of God will come, but it is not here. No joy. Only anticipation. Only dread. And so this kind of religion is full of things like confession, but without hope. It is, to put it like in our order of service, it would be like to have the confession, but no assurance of pardon. Forever and ever. In our passage, we see two different approaches to religion. We have the Pharisees and the disciples of John. On the other side, we have the disciples of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is in their midst. The bridegroom is with them. There is new wine. Our passage summons us to see that the old covenant way of life cannot contain new covenant joy. That we as citizens of the new kingdom of God, new covenant of grace, have joy. That our religion ought to be flavored by joy. And so we have two points this morning. First, old covenant fasting. The other religion, in other words, the religion of the Pharisees and the disciples of John. And second, new covenant rejoicing. The true Christian religion the religion of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so first, the Old Covenant fasting. So at this point in the book of Mark, we find ourselves at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So Jesus has appeared in chapter 1, seemingly out of nowhere. 
Matthew will give a birth account. Luke will give a birth account. Mark just introduces Jesus. John the Baptist is here proclaiming the message of Malachi and Isaiah. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus declares. Things happen very rapidly in the book of Mark. Jesus comes proclaiming in Mark 1, 14 and 15, the message of the gospel. He doesn't mince words. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Things are happening. This is a new stage. We've crossed over from the old covenant to the new. Jesus Christ is here. God's prophecies are being fulfilled. The kingdom of God is in the midst of his people. So repent and believe the good news. John prophesied in um, chapter 1, verse 8, that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Joel's prophecy of the Holy Spirit, this will come to pass. And we see in the Gospel of Mark, heavens ripping open and the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus Christ for his work. Things are happening. And they're going to happen quick. The beginning of Jesus' ministry at this point in the Gospel of Mark has been full of teaching, healing, and conflict. Already in verses um, 12 and 13, there's a conflict with Satan. Initiated by God, if you'll notice, if you'll turn there, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. The old kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, is being attacked by the Son of God. Things are happening. Things are being shaken up. Then, later on, as we read in our passage, the kingdom of darkness seems to strike back. The Pharisees and the scribes dispute with Jesus. They take issue and exception with the Messiah who's come. His teachings, it doesn't make sense. How can he forgive sins? No one can forgive sins but God alone. How can the Messiah eat with tax collectors and sinners? This isn't, my religion doesn't allow this. This isn't what I imagine the Messiah to be like. And so perhaps he's not the Messiah. Eating, perhaps even feasting with tax collectors and sinners. And now to add insult to injury, what's he teaching his disciples? You can imagine the Pharisees wringing their hands about it. What's he teaching these misled masses? Not to fast? Not to fast? You might as well be teaching them atheism to the Pharisees' mind. Fasting was commanded in the Old Covenant once per year. By the time of Zechariah, we learn there's more annual fasts. But if you were really pious, if you were really taking your religion seriously, as you should, you would do what the Pharisees did. You'd fast twice a week, and you'd boast about it. I fast twice a week, along with all of my tithing and all my good works. I humble myself before God twice a week. Unlike you and you and you and you who are not so humble, Jesus, you remember the parable spoke about the Pharisee who went into the temple and he called out this kind of pride. God commanded fasting though. And so it was good. Perhaps even now as the Christian church, we should think about recovering fasting as Jesus seems to expect his disciples to fast, but with the right mindset. This is not the right mindset. Pride. And arrogance, not humility, not humbling yourself before God. We also learn, though, that John's disciples are fasting in our passage in verse 18. 
We don't know much about John this far in the Gospel of Mark. He seems to come out of nowhere in the wilderness, dressed up like Elijah of old, eating locusts and wild honey, wearing a belt of camel's hair, living rough and rugged out in the wilderness. And he's an ascetic. He's waiting for the kingdom of God to come. And he's arrested, we're told. And he'll be imprisoned, and in Mark 6, he'll be executed. But his disciples are still seeming to preach his message. At least, it seems that they're going around continuing to practice the faith he taught them. That the Messiah would come. But even they're confused. We learn in the Gospel of Luke that even there's doubts in John the Baptist's mind. Is this the Messiah? Because he's not behaving like the Messiah I thought he would be. I thought this was kingdom come. I thought this was the rescue of Israel. Where's this kid? Is this the Messiah? The same problem that the Pharisees were having. The Messiah doesn't look like how I want it to look. I grew up with strictness. I grew up with ashen faces. I grew up with the expectation that when the Christ would come, it would look like a certain way. And now how does it look? John's disciples question. Not fasting? And even in the previous passage, going to people's homes and eating? Clearly, Jesus' disciples aren't taking the faith seriously. Because they would just be as miserable as the Pharisees if they took it seriously. They would be fasting. They would just constantly be humbling themselves and bringing themselves down, waiting for God to do something. The assumption there is that God hasn't done something. People ask, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus responds, I'm the bridegroom. I'm in the people of God's midst. How could they fast? How could they even dare to fast? That is impossible. The bridegroom is here. With these words, Jesus places himself in his ministry in an Old Testament context, like the book of Hosea, where it is the Lord who is Israel's husband. And the other passages in the Old Covenant that speak of a marriage between the people of God and their God. He is the bridegroom. And what you don't understand, disciples of John and the Pharisees, is that I'm here. I am in your midst. God has acted. He has brought Messiah into the world. God now dwells with man. The kingdom of God is here. Things have changed. Your old covenant way of life and your perversion of it cannot contain what has come now. Not only is it improper for people to be fasting and mourning. And what's imagined here isn't the private mournful fast of people who are grieving, but the, but the kind of fasting that shows itself over the top. That's not allowed anymore. That's impossible. Because I'm here. Do you know what it means that Jesus Christ is here? It means a lot. It means joy has entered the world. It means that sins are forgiven. It means that reconciliation has been accomplished by the Lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world. These things may not have been fully understood at this point in Mark, but Jesus has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
There's still things to come. But the kingdom of God is inaugurated. We're in a new phase of history. It's not just anticipation. It's not just waiting. It's not just a redemption to come. It's a redemption here and now. He is in your midst. How much more us? Post-Pentecost, where the Lord our God by His Spirit dwells in our hearts in a new way. With all of Christ's works of redemption. He prophesies here in a very cryptic way in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. He's a reference to his death. We stand on the other side of that. Christ being raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, dwelling in our hearts by faith. The bridegroom is with us, always with us. What this is pushing us toward and what we must see is that our religion, our walk with God must be characterized by joy. A new covenant joy. A joy knowing that redemption has been accomplished and is applied. There is more to come, but what we have now is nothing less than the reconciliation with our God. Lives are made whole now. We can rejoice. And this affects so much about our Christian walk. The Lord's table. Let's apply it to our sacrament. We must prepare our hearts for it. Confessing our sin correcting wrongs where they are, reconciling ourselves to our brothers and sisters if we're not reconciled. But should we not also prepare our hearts for the joy? What do we experience at the Lord's table? The presence of the bridegroom in our midst in a distinct way. We are brought into God's dwelling place to commune with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. If the disciples cannot fast, because Jesus Christ is just in their midst, how much more us? We should prepare our hearts for joy when we come to the Lord's table, knowing that we will experience something wonderful. What about prayer? Prayer can become such a drudgery, can't it? Especially when we put a law upon ourselves, and I must do it at this time, this way, at this certain length. Do we recognize what we have in prayer, though? We're communing with the bridegroom. We're entering into this wedding-like atmosphere. Shouldn't we have joy? Shouldn't we rejoice that we're given this opportunity to commune with this wonderful Messiah who's brought the kingdom of God into the world? What Jesus is laying down here is this principle. The highest form of Christianity finds its expression in joy. Not just grief and mourning. And look how bad I am. Some of us may have grown up in churches or homes where the religion was, I am a worm, how low am I? And that was the sign of a truly godly man. As if he had no assurance of salvation. If he had no confidence in the Lord. Jesus is laying out this joy of a wedding feast. Just imagine the picture. Weddings back then were so different from ours now. Ours are just simply a day long. That would have been a poor man's wedding then. If a family could afford it, they would go on for weeks at a time if they could. There would be hundreds of gallons of wine if possible. Multiple animals cooking on the fire. Multiple different dresses for the brides to wear. How 
ridiculous it would have been for the, for, the, for the whole crowd to show up and just ashes on their forehead, sullen faces, dressed in all black, with a scowl. The bridegroom is in the midst of God's people. How could they not rejoice? How could we not rejoice? Jesus also gives two more illustrations in our passage to really push down on this truth. First one he gives in verse 21 is the sewing of an unshrunk cloth on an old garment. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. No one. He phrases it as though this is a truism. Obviously you wouldn't. Because if he did, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. Now, perhaps 50 or 100 years ago where people repaired clothing more often, this would have been more sensible, but the image is this. Freshly produced cloth is shrunk, and it needs to be relaxed a bit through a wash, through being processed. If you just take a piece of freshly made cloth and put it on an old garment, this is what will happen. You put it through the wash, and a massive rip right through the cloth will happen. And the whole garment will, be, will just be torn apart. You might as well not have done it. It will just ruin everything. The image Jesus is giving is if we attempt to take what we have in the new covenant, our joy, our experience of God's presence through Jesus Christ, and we just try to filter that through the old covenant practice, this Pharisaic way of living, just anticipation with no joy, it will destroy everything. We'll be living a half-truth, a half-confession. And that's impossible to do. It would be destructive with a schizophrenic mind going one way and the other way, living in unreality that Jesus Christ hasn't come, that we haven't been reconciled, that we must simply wait for God to act, that he is not in our midst. He gives a second illustration on us of the third in verse 22, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. Wine skins are these leather pouches that ancient people would carry on their person, and wine was more safe than water to drink more often than not, so this was something you everybody had on them. And you can imagine in the Judean sun, in the heat of summer, a nice leather wineskin would just dry out and get cracked with age. When you make wine, gas is released, and it causes an expansion. So new wine, freshly pressed, must go into brand new wineskins. If not, the pressure will build up and the leather will crack and then the wine will spill out. Again, an illustration that emphasizes destruction New wine. That's a phrase we see throughout the prophets and in the Old Testament. In Haggai, it's used to, in reference to God's blessing upon the returned exilic community. That now they're in the land and there's wine. There's feasting. There's drinking with joy. Wine is used in Deuteronomy as an image of God's blessing. The absence of it is a sign of his cursing. Wine was symbolic of God's covenant blessing to his people. 
if we go back into this old way of thinking. Jesus is not yet. We don't have what we have in the covenant of grace. We don't have what we have in the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then the wine is gone. It's fallen out. Not only can it not work together, but we would be acting as though we're denying the faith itself. The rocks must cry out in joy. All of creation is crying out in joy, declaring the praises of its maker. How could we not? How could we not join in that chorus? In the book of Revelation, we're told that the angels in heaven say constantly, holy, holy, holy. They're not fasting. They're rejoicing. For the lamb has been slain and he now has authority to reign and to open the seals of the book. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is in our midst by his spirit. He is with us always. So congregation, what is your religion? There's multiple ways you can approach your faith. Do you understand the treasures that you have in it? Because when we really study Christ, We'll sing hymns about the seeing his face. When we study his face, it should cause joy to come out. As we read the words of God, it ought to move us to doxology, to the singing of his praise, not just to fasting. It's not just presenting us with a problem of sin. Jesus Christ provides us the answer to sin. How can we not rejoice? How could we not walk that new life? We ought not to go with the disciples of John or the Pharisees, but truly be disciples of Jesus, who rejoice, who praise the name of the Lord their God, who embrace that covenant, that new kingdom, and walk in it, joy in the heart, with a smile on our face, confessing our sins, because this is part of our faith, of course hearing that assurance of pardon with joy. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious, sovereign Lord, you are always in our midst. You sent your Son, you sent your Spirit. What joy and what promise. May we walk, Lord, as this people of joy, knowing, Lord, that though we must confess our sin, must we, re we must recognize our brokenness. You do not leave us there. You do not abandon us to despair, but you take us to your breast and you give to us joy. May this joy be ours. May it flavor our entire walk with you, our entire religion, so that, Lord, we may sing your praises. Empower our worship for the rest of this day. May this whole day be dedicated to you and to your service and to the glory of your holy name. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus Christ, our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.